You're listening to audio from City Light South Church. If you'd like to check out more resources and find ways to get involved, go to citylightsouth.org.au. So this week, I was alerted to something else in the news. It was a, uh, an article about public health, um, which isn't always the most exciting thing to click on, but I decided to read it based on the headline. It was coming out of the United States. Um, talking about the new public health priority in the world. I don't know if you saw this as well, but the World Health Organization has finally declared an end uh, to the uh, uh, pandemic uh, emergency related to COVID. That finally came to an end uh, this week, but then they're talking about the next big public health crisis. I don't know if you know what it is, but I'll tell you in just a minute. It's not has nothing to do with COVID or any infectious disease. Uh, it doesn't have to do with vaping or cigarettes, doesn't have to do with genetically modified foods. Um, The next big public health crisis, according to the Surgeon General of the United States, is the epidemic of loneliness. True story. He released a report, they released a report in the United States um, saying that that health officials need to treat loneliness with the same urgency as drug abuse, um, cigarette smoking, and the like, it affects more than half of the world's, uh, of the population in the United States, similar numbers here in Australia and in other developed countries. Uh, the studies have been linked, linked loneliness to a general decline in, in well-being, um, to also increased hospital admissions, um, early onset dementia, anxiety, depression. And as a result, doctors are being asked to prescribe their patients activities Uh, to bring them into close contact with other people, places and common interest groups where people can be open with one another and share their struggles. Now, I I don't know about you, um, but I can think of one place in the world where, at least on paper, men and women come together regularly to share their struggles, come together around a common interest, a place where they can be open with one another. And that, of course, is the local pub. The local pub, the place where everybody knows your name, and they're always glad you came. It's a TV reference that probably 10 of you in the room know. Um, but uh, as much as we like to think that the local pub or our local sporting club or whatever it is, or even our own biological families can cure our loneliness, the reality, as we know, is a lot more messy than that. Because people are messy. And we always find ourselves hiding from the light. We've, we always feel like we can't be fully us even amongst our close friends and family. Because if if they, whoever they are, if they really knew that about me or about you, then everything, it would all collapse. It would be all over. We need something better. We need a, a, a better place, a better group, a better community, a better family. Now, this morning, where we're up to in, in 1 Peter that we've been tracking through, he's going to give us a glimpse into a community, a type of community that does not require any hiding, a a, a kind of love that really delivers what is advertised. It's a come-as-you-are kind of love, a come-and-find, undeserved, radical love. Not only love to receive, but love to give. Love that endures, love that's pure, love that is breathed into life and sustained by the author of love himself, the one who on the night he was betrayed bent down to wash the feet of his enemies. So I'm going to read um, from 1 Peter chapter 1, starting verse 22, 
And then I'll pray, and then we'll dive in. So I'm reading from the CSB, starting verse 22, down to chapter 2, verse 3. The words are on the screen behind me as well. Since you have purified yourselves by your obedience to the truth, so that you show sincere brotherly love for each other from a pure heart, love one another constantly, because you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like a flower of the grass. The grass withers, and the flower fails, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this word is the gospel that was proclaimed to you. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all slander. Like newborn infants, desire the pure milk of the word, so that you may grow up into your salvation, if you have tasted that the Lord is good." This is God's word to us this morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that your word is true. Thank you that your word is beautiful. Thank you that your word is able to make us wise, able to make us love and long for love. So Lord, I pray that your word would do the work in our hearts that you've designed it to do this morning. Help us to listen. Help us to obey. Help us to have joy um, together as we gather it around your word this morning, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let me give just a quick summary recap of where we've been going in 1 Peter. If you're just joining us this week, you'll see that this text is not just an isolated passage, but it's part of a letter, part of a flow of argument. It was written 2,000 years ago uh, by a real dude called Peter, who is one of Jesus' disciples, um, and he's writing to a real group of people who right up front he calls chosen exiles. They're living in various Christian communities in local churches scattered throughout what is today the modern-day country of Turkey, Um, and Peter's aim is to anchor their hope in the unchanging, imperishable message of the gospel of Jesus. So that despite everything that they're going through, and their lives are not easy by any stretch of the imagination, whatever they're suffering, that their faith and their hope and their love is even deeper than that. Now, last week's message highlighted three commands, three imperatives, we call them. And they spring from the hope that we have in the gospel of Jesus. He calls us to set our hope firmly on Jesus who is coming back on that future grace, that inheritance we have. He says, set your hope firmly on that. Um, And then we're called, he says, to be holy like God and to live in awe of God. Those are the three imperatives that we looked at last week. This week, the letter is going to turn our focus a little bit away from our, the vertical relationship that we have with God that we talked about last week to our horizontal relationships, our relationships with one another in the church. If you look at verse 22, it's another one of those what we call an indicative imperative pair. We talked about that last week, so let me explain again what that is. Peter is going to start out giving us an indicative. He's going to tell us something about ourselves that is objectively true, something that's eternally true. That's the indicative. And then he says, because that is true, because this is true of you, therefore, now live this way. That's the imperative do this, don't do that. You are this, now live like this. Indicative, imperative. A key component of your new life in Christ, of your mission, is to sincerely love, deeply love the people in your new 
Christian family. Every Christian has been saved by God. That's eternally true. You have been created anew, born again, recreated to love, to love the family, and to receive love from family. The first two-thirds of verse 22 are a description of your new status in Christ. You've purified yourselves. You're now pure by your obedience to the truth. He's not saying here that that these Christians have worked really, really hard, and now they've finally reached the gold standard, and they're finally worthy enough to be called Christians. That's not what he's saying. That's an anti-gospel message. He's describing simply what happened when they first became Christians, when they first believed the gospel message. At that moment, by God's grace, they became obedient children. Go back to the beginning of the letter, chapter 1, verse 2. The chosen exiles were chosen by God the Father before they were born, and they were chosen for a purpose, and that purpose was to be obedient and to be pure, or it says sprinkled with Christ's blood. And the same ideas are here in verse 22. Because they were chosen to believe, now they are pure. They are obedient. Now they are pure. They are obedient to the truth. And then Peter adds this phrase. He says, so that you show sincere brotherly love for each other. That's not a command yet. It's a purpose statement. It's a why statement. Why you are saved. You are called. You were purified. You were obedient so that you might love the people in your new family. So here's the command. From a pure heart, he says, love one another constantly. Here's the truth, the indicative. As a Christian, you were called, you were purified, you were made obedient. Now here's your purpose, so that you love one another. Now here's the command, go do it. Go do it. Get busy loving, not just as a a one and done, but constantly, fervently, sacrificially. See, our hearts need to see that the command to love one another, it's not just a nice idea. It's not just optional or peripheral, but it's central to who you are. It's central to your identity, central to your purpose in life as a Christian. When you choose not to love in small ways or in big ways, when you choose not to love or you choose to be indifferent towards your Christian family, your brothers and sisters, or when we collectively choose not to love one another sincerely or fervently, then we're not living our purpose. And that's not just a small problem. That's a big problem because it's then everything that we say we believe, everything we say we are, everything we say about following Jesus sounds rightly fake, like religious posture. What does it look like? Um, we just celebrated Anzac Day a couple of weeks ago, and on a couple of days, or the, uh, the day of, I put a, a post up on social media based on Jesus' words from John 15. Jesus said, no, greater, no one has greater love than this, to lay down his life for his friends. And Jesus said that just before he went to the cross and literally laid down his own life. But two chapters before that, John 13, Jesus laid down his life in another really powerful way. He he laid down his rights to be served. 
And he's a king. He, he had the right and has the right to be served. But instead, he chose to serve his friends who in no way deserve to be served. He, he laid down his desire for self-care. He knew he was going to suffer. He knew he was going to die. He knew what was coming. He knew the excruciating pain of the cross that he was about to endure instead of going, okay, guys, I just need a little me time. He, he, he took off his outer robe and he got down and began to wash the feet of the very men who would abandon him just hours later. John describes this as a phrase. He says, when Jesus did that, he loved them to the very end. See, that's the picture of Christian love that we're to have for one another. It's to that extent. It's that It's that over the top, if you like. Jesus washed the dirty feet of his faithless friends. And, and when he finished, he said to them this, he said, you call me Lord and teacher. And that's right, because I am those things. He said, but if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash one another's feet. This is the kind of love that you are recreated for, both to give and to receive. So taking a bullet for a person is an act of love. But how many of you are actually going to be called to do that? Hopefully not many. We talk like that. You know, I would take a bullet for this person. I would lay down my life for this person, but secretly thinking, well, I won't really ever have to do that. But what about putting someone else's preference above your own? See, that's harder, because that's something we are called to do on a regular basis. If you live with another person in a, in a house, you're called regularly to lay down your own preferences for the sake of someone else, whether it's the, the temperature you keep the house, or uh, who does the dishes, or we're always being called to put someone else's preferences and interests ahead of our own. Uh, what about getting the last word in a, in a conversation or an argument? It's not my right. That's hard. Not forgiving someone for the hundredth time. We've all got stories. We've got stories not only when it's been hard for us to love like that, but we've got stories of when someone else has loved us like that when it's sprung up out of the blue at just the right moment. Now I've got stories where I, I've seen the Spirit of Jesus walk into the room in the form of fervent, unexpected, over-the-top love. Not always into the literal room, but sometimes online, straight into my DMs. I got a message from someone recently that said this, so Tyler, I'm sorry to ask you this, but can you tell me the names of your kids just one more time, because I really want to commit to pray for them every single day. That might sound like a small thing, guys, but that is, that is the love of Jesus in a text message. It really is. It, it was out of the blue and over the top, except it wasn't. Because a message like that is only prompted by the Holy Spirit. The one who loved his disciples. The one who loves his family by name. Even Judas, the betrayer, Jesus washed his feet, loved him to the end. Uh, Katrina and I get to do a bit of pre-marriage coaching um, as part of our role as 
to all people in the church. Um, and one of the privileges of doing it, um, getting to hang out with some awesome young couples, some of you in this room, um, is that uh, one of the things we do is we get to get to listen to them name the traits of the person they're about to marry, what they love about that person. And, uh, you know, there's always the cynic in us that says, oh, yeah, you'll say anything when you're about to get married and you're, you know, got the rose of colored glasses on and, and you know, just, you just want to get married. And then by, by, you know, two years into it, all the, the romance and all the loveliness will be gone. But you know what? We've heard people say this in their, you know, not always in these exact words, things like, you know, this person that I'm about to marry actually helps me want to be like Jesus more. How good is that? that? That's not just human romantic love that's here today and gone tomorrow. See, that's the spirit of Christ in the hearts of two very imperfect people, but who are coming together in this relationship of family love. And the good thing is, in the church, you don't have to be married to experience this kind of love. Uh, you know, we males, females, young, old, every person um, in the church, we can love each other toward Christ. We can inspire each other. We can serve each other. We can put each other first. We can pray for each other. We can bear one another's burdens. We can outdo one another in showing honor. We do all of those things because that's what we've been saved to do. That's our purpose. That's what we've been recreated to do. We get to every morning, get up and choose to lay down our own dignity, lay down our own rights, and wash the feet of the people that God has put in your life on purpose. And we, we need to love our church family as much as we need to be loved. The answer to the loneliness epidemic really does start right here. I've spent a lot of time on verse 22, but we need to get the rest of the passage because it's going to help us help our love endure when life gets hard. The rest of the passage talks about the Word of God, which is the Gospel, and by extension, the whole Bible. So Peter uses two metaphors in this passage to describe the Word of God. Two metaphors. Um, the first metaphor, if you like, is kind of a male metaphor, and the second metaphor is more of a female metaphor. Let me explain. The first metaphor, that he compares the Word of God to the male seed that brings life into the world, and then the beginning of chapter two, he uses a female metaphor, he compares the Word to a mother's milk for her baby. So we'll start with the male image first. It says, love that endures is born from, or springs from, the seed of the word that lasts, that endures. So let's unpack that. So you've been born again, Peter says. Uh, we all know that phrase. The King James used the word begotten. You've been begotten anew. Uh, the emphasis is on what God did to bring you into your current state. Out of the former deadness of your heart, and the emptiness of your ways, he formed in you new life out of nothing. He recreated you. Um, and he now compares you. The way that he brought that life into existence is by his word, which he compares to seed that then grows up. And it's imperishable, he says. It's this analogy. He says, when you were every person that's alive was started out as a perishable seed and then grew into a fully grown adult. And your new creation self began with an imperishable seed, which is the Word of God. If you're a Christian, 
This is your story. This is your origin story. You came into existence from this imperishable seed of his birth. God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not what? Shall not perish, but have eternal life. That's what it means when he says imperishable. Your new life is imperishable, unable to perish, unable to die. God saved you with his word, and he sustains you every single day with the same word. His word is living. It's enduring. Every day, the word of the gospel gives you new faith, new hope, new love for that day. He quotes the Old Testament here uh, from Isaiah chapter 40. It's a passage that was originally spoken um, thousands of years ago to give hope and comfort to a group of exiles, a group of Israelites who were living far outside the Promised Land in a place called Babylon. And they were living there as second-class citizens in the heart of the evil empire. And they were thinking, maybe God's forgotten us. Maybe his promises are just going to, you know, we've, we were too bad. We sinned too many times. That's it. We're cut off. And then God speaks comfort. And, and one of the things that he speaks is here, what, is what Peter quotes. All flesh is like grass, and its glory like a flower of the grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord endures forever. What's he saying? This was the gospel to these exiles. In Jesus, or in Isaiah's day, God says, I have not forgotten. All of those promises that I made to Abraham thousands of years ago are still true. You're still my people. I still love you. Even though everything around you looks bleak. Even though the power and the, 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 the glory that you see around you is empire, I and my word is bigger and more glorious and more enduring. Not even the Babylonians can stop what I'm about to do. Just hold on just a little bit longer. I wonder how is it possible to love and to keep loving when we live in an environment like that where we're being sort of crushed by the reality of maybe our own sin or the brokenness and injustice of the world around us? How do we stop from becoming bitter or anxious in that situation. We keep coming back to the promises. We keep coming back to the seed of God's word, to the hope of the gospel. And we let him replenish our hope. We let him give us a new willingness to love. The one who's forgiven little, Jesus says, loves little. The one who recognizes and meditates on how much he's been forgiven, how much he's loved, loves much. And that kind of love is love that endures. And that kind of love is the love that we need for one another in the church. Later on in the letter, we'll get to our love, the love that we have for people outside the church. They're not mutually exclusive. But here, Peter's talking about the love that exists inside the church. It has to start here. And it takes daily intentionality to go back to the Word, go back to the Gospel, back to the promises of Christ's love, back to our baptism. Daily decisions to take off the robe of pride and put on the towel of humility. If we refuse or don't learn to love recovering sinners in this family, in the church, 
But how are we going to love people outside? How will anyone know that the love of Christ is enough, even for the hard-hearted people like us? Love covers a multitude of sins, and it starts here. It starts with us. Love that endures, endures because of the word that endures. The word of God is this imperishable seed and grows into enduring love. But then he says in chapter 2 that the word of God is also like a mother's milk. It's 100% pure. Everything that is needed for your growth and your flourishing is contained in it. Let's look at chapter 2. It starts off with this instruction. It says to get rid of all the obstacles and the opposites of pure love. So he gives this list. Malice. What is that? Malice is acting against what's best for another person. Deceit. Intentionally promoting what's false to gain some advantage for yourself. Hypocrisy. Promoting the good with your words while destroying it with your actions. Envy. Despairing over someone else's success and refusing to celebrate with them. Slander. Speaking disparagingly or falsely about another person. All these things can happen in the church. Now, thankfully, I, I don't have too many first-hand stories of those things from this church. And that's the grace of God at work in you. It happens no more than we realize in the church. And it can happen to us. There are thousands of people around the world who today will not gather, cannot gather with other Christians because, not because they've been convinced by some atheist argument, but because they've been hurt, trampled on, and abused in the church. And that should make us grieve so deeply and make us resolve to create real gospel culture of real repentance and humility and love here. But this doesn't happen automatically. Here's how it happens. Verse 2. It says, here's what you need to do. You need to be, y'all need to be, a bunch of babies. That's what he says. He says, be like a newborn baby. Um, like the ones I mentioned last week that cry all through the night, drive your parents crazy. Why do they cry? Why do babies cry? Most of the time, they've got one thing that they know they need. One thing. And that's mom's milk. So they cry. And Peter says, that's what the Bible is for all of us. It's mom's milk. It's what we need. It's, it's not just for new Christians, by the way. We don't graduate from the Bible. This is what we need until the day we see Jesus face to face. Every single day. Now, I know it's confusing because in Hebrews, and I think in 2 Corinthians, there's, uh, there, um, like, the analogy is of milk is kind of like the basics, it's like Christianity 101, and then you sort of move on to the meat, which is like the deep stuff. And, and there's, a, there's a place for that. We can explain that another time. But here, Peter's not saying milk is the basics. He's saying milk is what sustains you every day for the rest of your life. You, you, you will never arrive at a place in this life where you no longer need the Word of God. Ever. It will be your staple diet until the day you die. You will, you will not be, you cannot be conformed to Christ without it. You cannot love at least the way Jesus loved, without it. You can't endure. You can't maintain hope without it. 
There's no growing in fervent love without constant feeding from the word. In verse 3, Peter says this, kind of almost as an aside. He says, if you have tasted that the Lord is good. If. Now, some translations will take the word if, which is what it says in Greek, if, and change it to the word now, or since, or because. Um, Tom Schreiner, who's a Greek scholar, says, look, there's a reason Peter uses the word if here. He says, this is, it's not to confuse us and make us kind of really doubt whether or not we're actually Christians and be anxious. He uses it because it's an invitation to contemplate something, to spend some time remembering what God has done. Write it down. Peter is confident that we all have lots to remember when it comes to the goodness of God the mercy of God, the love of God towards us specifically, towards you specifically. He said, spend some time here. Think about the promises of the gospel and think about how they've been fulfilled to you specifically. And when you do that, you will be propelled to love. The one who's tasted much of his mercy loves much. Peter borrows this phrase, the, you know, the tasting of the goodness of the Lord's milk, as it were, from Psalm 34, verse 8, where we read, taste and see that the Lord is good. How happy is the person who takes refuge in him. You know what that is? That's a picture of our God holding you like a mom holds her little baby in his arms, taking refuge in him as you feed on his blood. We see ourselves like that. That is who we are. Our desire, our energy, our fuel to love people grows exponentially. It might seem obvious that I'd say this, but I really do believe that the answer to the epidemic of loneliness in us and in the world, it starts here. It starts with us. After all, it was God who said, before the very first sin entered the world, God said that it's not good for man to be alone. And that's man and woman. It's not good for human beings to be alone. And yet the Lord himself is good. The Lord himself lives in eternal community as Father and Son and Spirit. And now he invites you as his children into that community. And then to be community for one another in ways that bear all of the hallmarks of the Lord Jesus who washes feet. Uh, C.S. Lewis has this famous quote um, in his classic book, Near Christianity. He says, it's, it's, it's applies to loneliness as being a type of desire, uh, a desire for deep connection with people that's really hard to satisfy in this life. Here's, here's what he said. He said, creatures are, are not born with desires unless a satisfaction for that desire exists. So a baby feels hunger. Well, there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there's, there's such a thing as water. But if I find in myself a desire which no experience in the world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. See, our loneliness that we experience points to our longing for eternity, our longing for heaven. Our loneliness, our deep desires for connection will only be perfectly fulfilled 
in the arms of God. And, and, and that's not true for Christians, that's true for every person you lock eyes with. Every person that draws breath will only be fully satisfied in the arms of their Creator. So, so what hope is there now? What hope is there now? Did God just create us for love and recreate us for love and then just leave us to hang out until heaven? Of course not. We experience it fully then, but we taste it now. We can know deep community now. We can experience deep love now. So, so let me finish with the words of Jesus. This is from Mark chapter 10, verses 29 and 30. Jesus said this to his disciples. He said, truly I tell you, there's no one who's left house, or brothers, or sisters, or mother, or father, or children, or fields for my sake, and for the sake of the gospel, who will not receive a hundred times more now, at this time, houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, fields, with persecutions, and eternal life in the age to come. Deep community, real life, Brothers, sisters, mothers, fathers, children, friends, mentors, knit together by the love of Christ is for now. So the question isn't so much where are you finding that community? I mean, I hope you are in your church, in your discipleship group. The question is, who is your brother? Who is your sister? Who are you actively seeking to be that community for? To be that hundredfold family to? Loneliness in the world is an inescapable reality, but in the, in the church, loneliness is hypocrisy. It is. Every person is welcome into the family of God. Every person. All it takes is the faith to look at Jesus and receive the gift that he won for you. You do that, you're in the family. You're in the family. You're welcome. All the lonely people, all the troubled people, all the misunderstood people, all the sinners, all the religious people, all the non-religious people, all welcome to the family of God in the name of Jesus. That's what you're looking for. So who are you that kind of family to? Who are you loving? Who are you seeking to love? Who do you find it hard to love? Are you willing to take this journey to go back to the Word of God and say, God, show me, help me, feed me what I need to endure. Feed me what I need to love. That loneliness will never be felt or experienced in this family. God, it's, it's a big call, Lord. We, we know from just our own experience that without your help, without your enduring, pure word, Lord, that we cannot love the way that you love us, the way that you call us and made us to love. But Lord, with your word feeding us, with the promises of the gospel, the hope of Jesus right before our eyes, Lord, we can love deeply. God, I pray that you would convict us of our indifference to other people and cause us to love the way that we have been loved. Lord, help that not feel like a weight or a burden, but a privilege, an opportunity to love like Jesus has loved us. So I pray as we come to the table, Lord, that we would see not only the way Jesus loved us on the cross, 
but that we would see him and experience him washing our feet, making us new, sustaining us, embracing us. But whatever it takes, everything that is true of you, of the way that you love us, help us to feel that deeply. And then would you fuel us to love your people? We pray this in Jesus' name. Thank you for joining us for another message from City Light South Church. You can find out more about our church and connect with us at citylightsouth.org.au.